writer and theologian named uh, Frederick Buchner who wrote uh, something about Advent as we celebrate the third week of Advent here. He described it like this. He said, Advent is like the hush in the theater just before the curtain rises. It's like the hazy ring around the winter moon that means that the coming of the snow is going to turn the night to silver soon. But for the time being, is darkness. Darkness is where we are. Advent, for those of you new to church, it means arrival. We're in the third week of Advent. And this year, we're considering uh, four beautiful narratives from Scripture. The need, the, the promise, the plan, and the announcement of the coming of Christ. And this week, uh, this, we're going to be focusing on the plan. So our text for this morning, as the beauty of that plan is revealed, is in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. I'm going to read to 38. In the month, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of God, the Most High, will overshadow you. And therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Behold, your relative Elizabeth is in her old age, and she's also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is God's word. This morning we're going to Narrow our gaze on the virgin birth. Before I get into this, I want to acknowledge that if you're here this morning considering Christian faith, or you're, you're watching online right now considering Christian faith, the virgin birth is one of those mind-bending things that Christians believe. There's a handful of mind-bending things we believe, but the virgin birth is one of them. And this for you might seem like a massive hurdle. And can I just encourage you, if you are, um, you know, agnostic this morning, wondering about this, can I encourage you to consider that there's actually some common ground here? Because I believe in the virgin birth of Jesus, and at the moment, you believe in the virgin birth of the universe. We both believe mysteries. We both believe in a universe, in a world, and an existence where everything came from nothing, mysteriously. The difference being that at the beginning of that mystery, 
For me as a Christian, my answer to the question, what was the first mover? What was the cause for everything to come from nothing? My answer for that is the God of the Bible who manifest in Jesus Christ to walk the earth and crucify, was crucified under Pontius Pilate 3380. At the moment right now, you still believe in the mystery of everything from nothing. Um, but your answer at the moment for what spun it into existence, your answer at the moment is nothing did it. And so I'm going to invite you into this mystery of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. And I'm inviting you into the mystery because I think if you'll be honest with your position, you're already in a position of mystery. So let's consider the wonder of this, uh, this Christmas season together. This plan of redemption, the, the wonder of the light of Christmas of Jesus Christ that we celebrate in a few weeks, this plan is that he, God would redeem his creation. He would redeem the fallen world. He would redeem us as fallen people. Whoever calls upon him, Jesus Christ would be saved and this plan of redemption was spun into motion on the first page of your Bible. And in fact, these words to Mary, they reach back to a promise that God made on the first page of your Bible. Right after the fall, right after the divine treason of man deciding, our first parents deciding, we don't need God, we will be God. We don't need to be fulfilled by God, we will fulfill ourselves as God. This is what the fruit represents. The clamoring, unsatisfied vortex in the human soul to be fulfilled by this thing that can only be fulfilled by God. Right after that happened, in Genesis 3.15, God says to the enemy, in the Hebrew, the enemy is the Satan. So we, 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 we call him Satan, like that's his name, but it's, it's a term that just means the enemy. And so God says to the enemy right after the fall in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And that he is Jesus, the promised one, the one who would come, would save humanity from our continual spiral into darkness and sin and death, that he would come. Right at the first page of your Bible, you get this promise, this image of this wounded warrior, the one who would come and would bruise the enemy's head with his heel. And there's this fatal wound, but the fatal wound of the warrior is not final. He dies, bruising the head of the enemy, but then again he is raised to life. And so we get this picture of this promise and this plan right at the first page of your Bible. And now this culminates in this angelic encounter with Mary. And there is an undeniable connection that I think we need to see of God redeeming the place that woman has in the beginning of creation in, in, in the fall and here in the recreation through Jesus Christ. This glorious parallel, this picture of redemption where God is redeeming all things and he, and he even does this with the role that the woman plays. Eve, through her disobedience brings us into the, the fall of sin, the sin that has corrupted the entire human race. Mary, through her obedience, it results in the offer of the gift of salvation through Jesus, the entire human race. Eve's disobedience results in bringing about physical death. Mary's obedience results in, through the work of Christ, of course, the one who would bring eternal life. Eve was seduced 
by the word of a fallen angel. Mary is greeted with the good news of the messenger angel. Eve hid from God after disbelieving his word. Mary trusts in God and she hides his word. When you look at this picture, this plan unfolding in verses 30 through 33, as he comes to say that Jesus is going to come, the one who would rule this plan, he's going to come in humility. This king is going to die sacrificially. We know that in the end, he's going to rule eternally. This is what gives us in 33, of his kingdom there will be no end. He's not coming to bring judgment. That's exactly what we deserve. But he's not coming to bring judgment. He's coming to bear our judgment. And that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. And so this morning, I want us to sit in the gravity of Mary's response. Because she says this phrase, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And so we're going to revel a little bit in God's grace this morning, as we do every Sunday. But I want us to think about her response and consider... um, the implications of the work of grace in her life and the work of grace in our life. Now, before we ever ask of any scripture, what does this mean to me? We have to ask the question, what does it mean? And before we, you know, look at any text in scripture and say, how should I live and how ought I to live in light of this? We have to first begin by saying, how has Christ fulfilled this? And so this morning, we're going to sort of use that pattern as we unpack this this line, this response that Mary gives, because, because God's divine action calls for this human response. And in these very few words from Mary, I think what we see is this glorious heart of discipleship as a result of God's amazing, undeserved grace. It says that she's found favor with the Lord. In the Hebrew, favor all throughout is the kahen. And here in this text, she would have been familiar with those. I know it's in Greek. The New Testament is in Greek. But, but Mary would have been hearing, I, I have found this kahane with the Lord. I have found this undeserved grace as God has come upon me. And so she begins by saying, behold. And that word behold, we don't really use it um, today, day to day. You're not going to go to any Christmas parties. And you're not going to open the door and say, behold, your friend whom you love, whom you have invited. But if you did do that, that would be an appropriate use of the word behold. Because it means, you know, look and see. And, and in this context, it's like, look and see in the context of the relationship that we're, we have with each other. So she begins by saying, behold. And this beholding, this looking and seeing, this is core to the gospel. This is core to Christian faith. Um, G, when we're looking at Jesus, we are beholding God. Colossians 2.6, right? The fullness of deity dwells in Jesus. In, in the next chapter after this, when we consider um, the good news of the gospel, the angels show up and they begin by saying, Behold, there's this beholding. Look and see. This is the message of the gospel. This is what separates uh, Christian faith from just all the other world faiths because all world faiths operate on the basis, not of behold, they operate on the basis of behave. Behave in order to belong. Behave in order to be accepted. As Christians, we behave, absolutely. There's numerous uh, commands all through the New Testament in the ways in which we behave. But the premise is totally different. No Christian, true Christian faith, we don't behave in order to belong. We behave precisely because we belong. Precisely because we've already been brought in. Precisely because, like Mary, we have 
found grace, saving grace. And so all of our behaving is flowing out of the beholding. That's why Jesus could say things like, to the religious leaders, he could say things like, you know, there's tax collectors and prostitutes that are going to get welcomed in before you. On what basis could he say something so shocking? On the basis that we belong because we behold. The beholding leads to believing. That is the basis for which we belong. After the believing flows all manner of behaving. It's a lifelong journey in reordering our behaving. And it is because from joy, the Christian life is not simply a life of diligently following rules. We do that, but we're doing it because we're joyously following a king. If you raise your, if those of you have children, if you raise your children to understand Christian faith as diligently following rules, I don't think that's going to turn out as well as you think. If you can endeavor to raise your children to joyously follow a king, and in being enthralled with this king, and who he is, and what he has done, and what he has promised, that will give birth to all manner of desiring to follow the, following the ways of the king. This all starts from this beholding. And I want you to notice that when Mary gives a response, she's not really given a lot of clarity or explanation at all of what's going on. God is not going to make her life easy or understandable or painless by any means. All she's given is that she doesn't know how this is going to happen. She's never known a man. And the only explanation she's given is that the Spirit of God is going to overshadow her. And in the Greek, this overshadowing, this episkiaso, is to be enveloped by a presence. It's mystical. It's, it's a mystery. It's to be enveloped by a presence. But the purpose of being enveloped by the presence is that God would perform his will in her life. And you and I, being full of the Spirit, I think we can consider in the same way that Mary said, Behold, um, we ought to look at the wonder and the glory of our Savior as we ramp up to Christmas and say to him, uh, behold, here I am. And with that same sort of attitude that, you know, I don't have great clarity on everything going on in my life, great clarity on everything you are doing in my life, great clarity on what, you are, what my future holds. I don't have all that clarity, but what I do have is the assurance that you will, by your spirit, continue to indwell me, overshadow me, that your will would be done in my, in my life. So Mary says, behold, let's move on to the next phrase. Behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. This servant of the Lord, she presents herself um, in worship and readiness by God's grace. That's the posture. Worship and readiness. She knows who she is. Behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Um, If we roll this idea of servanthood into all of the other things the New Testament gives us, which, of of course, Mary didn't have the benefit of that, but we do, looking back, on what does this mean to be a servant of the Lord? There's this, behold, I'm a servant... John 15 talks about how we are friends of Jesus. No longer do I just call you servants only, but I call you friends. If I am a servant and I am a friend and I am called a child of God numerous times throughout the New Testament, uh, we get this full picture of being a disciple. This soul-strengthening love, this recalibrating power that comes to our heart and our minds so that we trust God's fatherly love and wisdom so that 
when the immediate road ahead is not clear to us whatsoever, just as it was not clear to Mary whatsoever, uh, the, the, the path ahead is riddled with risk, that there's a response to God that's like, um, I'm your servant. There is a security in this. There is a joy in this. I can resign to and not having everything figured out, but I can trust you wholly with my life because I know you are good and wise and loving. You see, again, when we contrast Mary's response here to the angel with Eve's response to the fallen angel, the fallen angel shows up in Genesis 3 and says, you know, God cannot fulfill you. Um, he's holding out on you. You will not surely die. Go fulfill yourself apart from God. And the, the, the response is, is what it was. Here is Eve responding to the, messenger, to the messenger angel with a posture that says, you know, I am your servant. There is, a, there is this um, beautiful picture of resigning to the goodness of God, but it isn't passive, and I'll get to that in just a second. She's, cho- she's choosing to participate in this work that's so holy, she's going to be brought to the edge of herself every day. I can't fathom it. I was reading this text and meditating it on and all week. I can't imagine it. When God came in order to rescue us, he is this king who stoops. And his stooping, his humiliating, his condescending, didn't begin when he was bent over to wash the disciples' feet. It begins here as he becomes a powerless fetus within a teenage girl's womb. And he's dependent on her breath and her blood. And she would later become dependent on his breath and his blood. Just as you and I are dependent on his breath and his blood. But his, his humiliation and his condescension and his, his willingness to not grasp at the glory of deity, but to lay it all aside to come for you and I, it all begins here. God has this history with humans, and it's a history of temple-making. We see it again here with Mary. The garden was a temple. Our first parents, we have to understand that text is given in the Hebrew such as we would understand they were priests. They weren't gardeners. The, The language given to describe Adam's work in the garden was that God took him and put him in the garden to tend and keep. Took, put, tend, keep. The original Hebrew audience would have understood those verbs as the work of a priest. So then he is given Eve as his helper. Not helper the way we use helper in English. Like, pat, pat on the head, you're my little helper. Helper in the Hebrew, the ezer, was the one who comes and brings strength that otherwise isn't there. God calls himself the ezer 21 times in the Old Testament. And so our first parents, Adam and Eve, they are these priests in the garden doing this priestly duty. So God has been up to dwelling with his people in in temples from the beginning. And that temple imagery moves from the garden after the fall into the wilderness, as again there's the temple in the wilderness. As God desires to dwell and be with his people, and here we see it again, as Mary is the first flesh and blood temple. She is the temple of the Lord. You and I are not flesh and uh, blood temples in the same way Mary was. We are spiritual temples, and the New Testament gives us lots of language around that picture of being temples. We're spiritual temples by God's grace. You know, Mary offered her whole self, including her body, and the way she lived mattered, including her body. 
And so, you know, united to Christ by his undeserved scandalous grace, the lives that you and I live matter, including our body. Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, it says, Present your body as a living sacrifice unto God. You know, be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is the good, the perfect, and the acceptable will of God and present your body as a living sacrifice. This is your worship. That's in Romans 12, of course. There's 11 chapters about the undeserved grace of God, how he has moved heaven and earth to save us apart from our works. And as a result of the grounds for God's grace... We are now introduced into the goal of God's grace. The goal meaning that we would live and flourish as a new humanity. Those who would reflect him and his goodness, his love, his character, his integrity in the earth. That we would reflect him. And so in the same way that we see this in Mary, as she was this temple, we must see ourselves in her. That she is a picture of the church. That we are temples. And so as we consider... Mary being this true believer, this obedient woman of faith. You know, she believed God's words. She treasured God's words. She pondered God's words. She allowed Christ to be formed in her. Literally. You and I are called to have Christ formed in us. More and more spiritually. Mary nurtured Jesus. Mary nourished Jesus. And you and I now, united to Christ by grace and faith alone, are called to be nourished by Jesus. So Mary was a sinner like us. Mary needed saving just like us. And so after Mary was, had Christ formed in her, literally, she became a disciple of Jesus. She followed Jesus. She listened to Jesus. She was a witness of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Just as you and I are called to become disciples of Jesus, follow Jesus, listen to Jesus, we are to bear witness of the death and resurrection of Jesus. She says, behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Let's move on to the last uh, portion of of her um, response to God. She says, let it be to me according to your word. And let it be is not like kesara sara. Let it be, uh, it's not just saying, hey, it is what it is. I don't understand what you just said, Gabe, but uh, it is what it is. It's not passive like that. Uh, It's a really interesting response that she gives. It's powerful. It's amazing. What she says is, when she says, let it be, uh, the the Greek verb, for those three words in English, is just one word in the Greek, and I'm giving you this Greek lesson on purpose. It's not just for uh, academic sake. Uh, The verb is genoito. And genoito means to be made manifest, to come into being. What a strange response. She says, behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it come into being. Let it be made manifest. She, knows it, she doesn't know how. She has no clue. Her life is going to be incredibly difficult as a result of this call. But she's saying, let it come into being. Let it be made manifest in me. And so what this teaches us is that she's not just passively resigning to God's will in her life. She's actively welcoming God's will in her life. Let it be made manifest in me. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus and he'll be great and he'll be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will resign, uh, I'm sorry, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And to his kingdom there will be no end. 
She says, let that name be manifest in me. The father unfolds his plan for redemption. Mary actively receives this life-altering call to participate in the father's plan for redemption. Christ the king would come and accomplish redemption. And then the Holy Spirit continues to overshadow and indwell his people so that through our proclamation of the good news, God would continue his work in redemption. You know, in closing, I'm going to borrow and adapt some thoughts from Todd Pickett, who's the Dean of Spiritual Development at Biola University. May Mary's response in that moment be our response to the goodness of God's scandalous and amazing grace as we set our sights on this Christmas day. And may our response be, Behold, here we are, the servants of the Lord, amidst diapers and needy children and laundry and housework. Let it be to me according to your word. Behold, here I am, a servant of the Lord, in the office or on campus or in the library in a labyrinth of cubicles or in the locker room, or hanging out with my friends, or with my classmates, my colleagues, who as I look at them, they're like sheep without the great shepherd. Let it be to me, according to your word. Behold, here we are, church, the servants of the Lord, in a city that seems impossibly far from God, infinitely beyond our ability to control or change. We are humbled by our smallness, but let it be to us according to your word. Behold, here we are. As this pandemic drags along, we are confronted daily with the weariness and the impatience and the loss and the frustration. Let it be to us according to your word. May we behold the good news of the gospel. May we call others to behold the good news of the gospel. Jesus Christ, who has come into our world. Jesus Christ, who through his life and his death and his resurrection has already overcome Jesus Christ, who will return again to judge all manner of evil, to eradicate all manner of sorrow, to restore all things and put everything right. May we, church, as those amazed by his grace, as those who are now overshadowed and being indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God, may we respond to our call as Mary responded to hers from a heart of wonder and joy as recipients of scandalous grace. May we say, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And may we go into the city with humility and boldness and give the defense for our hope in Christ. Amen. Let's pray.